0: This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy. It's woolly. I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year. Uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings. Uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors. Maybe you live in New Zealand or Chile or someone else Blech. somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, bunnieslippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from. All kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at bunnieslippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, bunnieslippers.com. Highland cow slipper. It's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland cow slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio which does have a chilly floor, even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. (laughs) Anyway, that's one reason D.B. Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, Let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois so if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now, you know... <laughs> somewhere in your house maybe uh, a robot is playing music for you enjoy so here we go uh, this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on pgttcm.com you can check the show notes to find out where to go or you can just simply i don't know find us on facebook we've got a link somewhere to somewhere. You buy shirts, it keeps the show going, makes me happy, makes you happy, everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything about the show, if you want to talk about anything... We've got a contact form at PGTTCM.com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere on, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All right, thank you. Here we go.
1: Bless Alwyn was seated in the anteroom of Senator Smith's office in Washington. The senator had not come in yet, and there were others waiting, too. The young man sat in a corner dreaming... Washington was his first great city, and it seemed a never-ending delight. The streets, the buildings, the crowds, the shops and lights and noise, the kaleidoscopic panorama of a world's doing, the myriad forms and faces, the talk and laughter of men. It was all wonderful magic to the country boy, and he stretched his arms and filled his lungs and cried, Here I shall live! Especially was he attracted by his own people. They seemed transformed, revivified, changed. Some might be mistaken for field hands on a holiday, but not many. Others he did not recognize. They seemed strange and alien, sharper, quicker, and at once more overbearing and more unscrupulous. There were yet others, and at the sight of these, Bless stood straighter and breathed like a man. They were well-dressed and well-appearing men and women who walked upright and looked one in the eye and seemed like persons of affairs and money. They had arrived. They were men. They filled his mind's ideal. He felt like going up to them and grasping their hands and saying, At last, brother! Ah, it was good to find one's dreams walking in the light, in flesh and blood. Continually such thoughts were surging through his brain and they were rioting through it again as he sat waiting in Senator Smith's office. The senator was late this morning. When he came in, he glanced at the morning paper before looking over his mail in the list of his clients. Do fools like the American people deserve salvation? He sneered, holding off the headlines and glancing at them. League beats trust. Farmers of South smash effort to bear market. Send cotton to 12 cents common people triumph. A man is induced to bite off his own nose and then sing a pen of victory. It's nauseating, senseless. There is no earthly use striving for such blockheads. They'd crucify any savior. Thus, half-consciously, Senator Smith salved his conscience while he extracted a certificate of deposit for $50,000 from his New York Mail. He thrust it aside from his secretary's view and looked at his list as he rang the bell. There was Representative Todd and somebody named Alwyn, nobody of importance. Easterly was due in a half hour. He would get rid of Todd meantime. Poor Todd, he mused. A lamb for the slaughter. But he patiently listened to him plead for party support and influence for his bill to prohibit gambling in futures. I was warned that it was useless to see you, Senator Smith, but I would come. I believe in you. Frankly, there is a strong group of your old friends and followers forming against you. They met only last night, but I did not go. Won't you take a stand on some of these progressive matters? This bill or the child labor movement or or low tariff legislation? "'Mr. Smith listened, but shook his head. "'When the time comes,' he announced deliberately, "'I shall have something to say on several of these matters. "'At present I can only say that I cannot support this bill.' "'And Mr. Todd was ushered out. "'He met Mr. Easterly coming in and greeted him effusively. "'He knew him only as a rich philanthropist "'who had helped the neighborhood guild in Washington, "'one of Todd's hobbies.' "'Easterly greeted Smith quietly.' Got my letter? Yes. Here are the three bills. You will go on the Finance Committee tomorrow. Sandridge is chairman by courtesy, but you'll have the real power. Put the child labor bill first, and we'll work the press. The tariff will take most of the session, of course. We'll put the cotton inspection bill through in the last days of the session, see? I'm maneuvering to get the Southern Congressman into line. Oh, one thing. Thompson says he's a little worried about the Negroes. Says there's something more than froth in the talk of a bolt in the Northern Negro vote. We may have to give them a little extra money and a few more minor offices than usual. Talk with Thompson. The Negroes are sweet on you and he's going to be the new chairman of the campaign, you know. Ever met him? Yes. Well, so long. Just a moment. The statesman stayed the financier. Todd just let fall something of a combination against us in Congress. Know anything of it? Not definitely. I heard some rumors. Better see if you can run it down. Well, I must hurry. Good day. While Bless Alwyn in the outer office was waiting and musing, a lady came in. Out of the corner of his eye he caught the curve of her gown, and as she seated herself beside him, the suggestion of a faint perfume. A vague resentment rose in him. Colored women would look as well as that, he argued, with the clothes and wealth and training. He paused, however, in his thought. He did not want them like the whites, so cold and formal and precise, without heart or marrow. He started up, for the secretary was speaking to him. "'Are you the, uh, the man who had the letter to the senator?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Let me see it. Oh, yes. He will see you in a moment.' Bless was returning the letter to his pocket when he heard a voice almost at his ear. "'I beg your pardon.' He turned and started. It was the lady next to him, and she was colored. Not extremely colored, but undoubtedly colored, with waving black hair, light brown skin, and the fuller facial curving of the darker world. And yes, Bless was surprised, for everything else about her—her voice, her bearing, the set of her gown, her gloves and shoes— The whole impression was, bless hesitated for a word, well, white. Yes, yes, ma'am, he stammered, becoming suddenly conscious that the lady had now a second time asked him if he was acquainted with Senator Smith. That is, ma'am. Why was he saying ma'am like a child or a servant? I know his sister. And have a letter for him. Do you live in Washington? She inquired. No, but I want to. I've been trying to get in as a clerk and I haven't succeeded yet. That's what I'm going to see Senator Smith about. Have you had the civil service examinations? Yes, I made 93 in the examination for a treasury clerkship. And no appointment? I see they are not partial to us there. Bless was glad to hear her say us. She continued after a pause. May I venture to ask a favor of you? Certainly, he responded. My name is Wynne. "'lowering her voice slightly and leaning toward him. "'There are so many ahead of me, and I am in a hurry to get to my school, "'but I must see the senator. Couldn't I go in with you? "'I think I might be of service in this matter of the examination, "'and then perhaps I'd get a chance to say a word for myself. "'I'd be very glad to have you come,' said Bless cordially.' The secretary hesitated a little when the two started in, but Miss Wynne's air was so quietly assured that he yielded. Senator Smith looked at the tall, straight black man with his smooth skin and frank eyes, and for a second time that morning, a vision of his own youth dimmed his eyes, but he spoke coldly. Mr. Alwyn, I believe? Yes, sir. And my friend, Miss Wynne. The senator glanced at Miss Wynn and she bowed demurely. Then he turned to Alwyn. Well, Mr. Alwyn, Washington is a bad place to start in the world. Bless looked surprised and incredulous. He could conceive of no finer starting place, but he said nothing. It is a grave, continued the senator, of ambitions and ideals. You would far better go back to Alabama, pausing and looking at the young man keenly. But you won't. You won't. Not yet, at any rate. And Bless shook his head slowly. No. Well, what can I do for you? I won't work. I'll do anything. No, you'll do one thing. Be a clerk. And then, if you have the right stuff in you, you will throw up that job in a year and start again. I'd like at least to try it, sir. Well, I can't help you much there. That's in civil service, and you must take the examination. I have, sir. So? Where and what mark? In the Treasury Department. I got a mark of nine to three. What? And no appointment? The Senator was incredulous. No, sir. Not yet, here Miss Wynn imposed. You see, Senator, she said, civil service rules are not always impervious to race prejudice. The Senator frowned. Do you mean to intimate that Mr. Alwyn's appointment is held up because he is... "'Colored?' "'I do.' "'Well, well,' the senator rang for a clerk. "'Get me the treasury on the telephone.' "'In a moment,' the bell rang. "'I want Mr. Cole.' "'Is that you, Mr. Cole?' "'Good morning. "'Have you a young man named Alwyn on your eligible list?' "'What?' "'Yes?' "'Indeed.' "'Well, why has he no appointment?' "'Of course, I know he's a Negro. "'Yes, I desire it very much. "'Thank you. "'You'll get an appointment tomorrow morning.' "'And the senator rose. "'How is my sister?' he asked absently. "'She was looking worried, "'but hopeful for the new endowment when I left.' "'The senator held out his hand, Bless took it and then remembered. "'Oh, I beg pardon, "'but Miss Wynn wanted a word on another matter.' The senator turned to Miss Wynn. "'I am a school teacher, Senator Smith, and like all the rest of us, I am deeply interested in the appointment of the new school board.' "'But you know the district committee attends to those things,' said the senator hastily. "'And then, too, I believe there is talk of abolishing the school board and concentrating power in the hands of the superintendent.' "'Precisely,' said Miss Wynn. "'And I came to tell you, Senator Smith, "'that the interests which are back of this attack upon the schools "'are no friends of yours.' "'Miss Wynn extracted from her reticule a typewritten paper. "'He took the paper and read it intently. "'Then he keenly scrutinized the young woman, "'and she steadily returned his regard. "'How am I to know this is true? "'Follow it up and see.' "'He mused. "'Where did you get these facts?' he asked suddenly. She smiled. "'It is hardly necessary to say. "'And yet,' he persisted, "'if I were sure of this source, "'I would know my ground better, "'and my obligation to you would be greater.' She laughed and glanced toward Alwyn. He had moved out of earshot and was waiting by the window. "'I am a teacher in the M Street High School,' she said, "'and we have some intelligent boys there "'who work their way through.' "'Yes,' said the senator.' Some, continued Miss Wynne, tapping her boot on the carpet, some wait on table. The senator slowly put the paper in his pocket. And now, he said, Miss Wynne, what can I do for you? She looked at him. If Judge Haynes is reappointed to the school board, I shall probably continue to teach in the M Street High School, she said slowly. The senator made a memorandum and said, I shall not forget Miss Wynne, nor her friends, and he bowed, glancing at Alwyn. The woman contemplated Bless in momentary perplexity, then bowing in turn, left. Bless followed, debating just what he ought to say, how far he might venture to accompany her, what, but she easily settled it all. I thank you. Goodbye, she said briefly at the door, and was gone. Bless did not know whether to feel relieved or provoked or disappointed, and by way of compromise felt something of all three the next morning he received notice of his appointment to a clerkship in the treasury department at a salary of nine hundred dollars the sum seemed fabulous and he was in the seventh heaven for many days of consciousness of wealth the new duties the street scenes the city life kept him more than busy he planned to study and arranged with a professor at howard university to guide him he bought an armful of books and a desk and plunged desperately to work. Gradually, as he became used to the office routine, and in the hours when he was weary of study, he began to find time hanging a little heavily on his hands indeed. Although he would not acknowledge it, he was getting lonesome, homesick amid the myriad men of a busy city. He argued to himself that this was absurd, and yet he knew that he was longing for human companionship. When he looked about him for fellowship, he found himself in a strange dilemma. Those black folk in whom he recognized the old sweet-tempered Negro traits had also looser, uglier manners than he was accustomed to, from which he shrank. The upper classes of Negroes, on the other hand, he still observed from afar. They were strangers not only in acquaintance, but because of a curious coldness and aloofness that made them cease to seem his own kind. They seemed almost at times like black white people, strangers in way and thought. He tried to shake off this feeling, but it clung, and at last, in sheer desperation, he promised to go out of a night with a fellow clerk who rather boasted of the people he knew. He had soon tired of the strange company and had turned to go home when he met a newcomer in the doorway. "'Why, hello, Sam!' "'Sam Stillins," he exclaimed delightedly and was soon grasping the hand of a slim, well-dressed man of perhaps thirty, with yellow face, curling hair, and shifting eyes. "'Well, of all things, Bless, er, uh, um, Mr. Owen, I thought you were hoein' cotton!' Bless laughed and continued shaking his head. He was foolishly glad to see the former Cresswell butler whom he had known but slightly." His face brought back unuttered things that made his heart beat faster and a yearning surge within him. I thought you went to Chicago, cried Bless. I did, but going into politics, having entered the political field, I came here, and you graduated, I suppose, and all that? No, Bless admitted a little sadly, as he told of his coming north and of Senator Smith's influence. But how are all... Abruptly, Sam hooked his arm into Alwyn's and pulled him with him down the street. Stillings was a type, up from servility and menial service, he was struggling to climb to money and power. He was shrewd, willing to stoop to anything in order to win. The very slights and humiliations of prejudice, he turned to his advantage. When he learned all the particulars of Alwyn's visit to Senator Smith and his cordial reception, he judged it best to keep in touch with this young man and he forthwith invited Bless to accompany him the next night to the 15th Street Presbyterian Church. You'll find the best people there, he said, the aristocracy. The treble clef gives a concert, and everybody, that's anybody, will be there. They met again the following evening and proceeded to the church. It was a simple but pleasant auditorium, nearly filled with well-dressed people, During the program, Bless applauded vociferously every number that pleased him, which is to say, every one, and stamped his feet until he realized that he was attracting considerable attention to himself. Then the entertainment straightway lost all its charm. He grew painfully embarrassed and for the remainder of the evening was awkwardly self-conscious. When all was over, the audience rose leisurely and stood in little knots and eddies, laughing and talking. Many moved forward to say a word to the singers and players. Stilling stepped aside to a group of men, and Bless was left miserably alone. A man came to him, a white-faced man with slightly curling, close gray hair and high-bred ascetic countenance. "'You are a stranger?' he asked pleasantly, and Bless liked him. "'Yes, sir,' he answered, and they fell to talking. He discovered that this was the pastor of the church. "'Do you know no one in town?' "'One or two of my fellow clerks and Mrs. Stillings.' "'Oh, yes, I've met Miss Wynn.' "'Why, here's Miss Wynn now!' Blessed turned. She was right behind him, the center of a group. She turned slowly and smiled. "'Oh!' she uttered twice but with different cadence. Then something like amusement lurked a moment in her eye, and she quietly presented Blessed to her friends, while Stillings hovered unnoticed in the offing. "'Miss Jones?' Mr. Alwyn of, she paused a second, Alabama, Miss Taylor, Mr. Alwyn, and, with a backward curving of her neck, Mr. Tierswell, and so on. Mr. Tierswell was handsome and indolent, with indecision in his face and a cynical voice. In a moment, Bless felt the subtle antagonism of the group. He was an intruder. Mr. Tearswell nodded easily and turned away, continuing his conversation with the ladies but miss Wynne was perverse and interrupted i saw you enjoyed the concert mr alwyn she said and one of the young ladies rippled audibly bless darkened painfully realizing that these people must have been just behind him but he answered frankly yes i did immensely i hope i didn't disturb you you see i'm not used to hearing such singing "'Mr. Tearswell, compelled to listen, laughed dryly. "'Plantation melodies, I suppose, are more your specialty,' he said with a slight cadence. "'Yes,' "Yes," said Bless simply. A slight pause ensued. "'Then came the surprise of the evening for Bless Alwyn. "'Even his inexperienced eye could discern that Miss Wynne was very popular, "'and that most of the men were rivals for her attentions. "'Mr. Alwyn,' she said graciously rising, I'm going to trouble you to see me to my door. It's only a block. Good night, all, she called, but she bowed to Mr. Tearswell. Miss Wynne placed her hand lightly on Bless's arm, and for a moment he paused. A thrill ran through him as he felt again the weight of a little hand and saw beside him the dark, beautiful eyes of a girl. He felt again the warm quiver of her body. Then he awoke to the lighted church and the moving, well-dressed throng. The hand on his arm was not so small, but it was well-gloved, and somehow the fancy struck him that it was a cold hand, and not always sympathetic in its touch. End of chapter 22 "'I did not know the world was so large,' remarked Zora, "'as she and Mrs. Vanderpool flew east and northward on the New York New Orleans Limited. "'For a long time, the girl had given herself up to the sheer delight of motion. "'Gazing from the window, she compared the lands she passed with the lands she knew, "'noting the formation of the cotton, the kind and growth of the trees, the state of the roads. "'Then the comparisons became infinite, endless.' The world stretched on and on until it seemed near distance, and she suddenly realized how vast a thing it was and spoke. Mrs. Vanderpool was amused. "'It's much smaller than one would think,' she responded. When they came to Atlanta, Zora stared and wrinkled her brows. It was her first large city. The other towns were replicas of Tombsville, strange in number, not in kind, but this was different. And she could not understand it. It seemed senseless and unreasonable, and yet so strangely so that she was at a loss to ask questions. She was very solemn as they rode on, and night came down with dreams. She awoke in Washington to new fairylands and wonders the endless going and coming of men, great piles that challenged heaven and homes crowded on homes till one could not believe that they were full of living things. They rolled by Baltimore and Philadelphia, and she talked of everyday manners, of the sky which alone stood steadfast amid whirling change, of bits of empty earth that shook themselves here and there loose from their burden of men and lay naked in the cold shining sunlight. All the while the greater questions were beating and curling and building themselves back in her brain, and above all she was wondering why no one had told her before of all this mighty world. Mrs. Vanderpool, to whom it seemed too familiar for comment, had said no word, or if she had spoken, Zora's ears had not been tuned to understand, and as they flew toward the towering ramparts of New York, she sat up big with the terror of a new thought. Suppose this world were full yet of things she did not know nor dream of. How could she find out? She must know. When finally they were settled in New York and sat high up on the 5th Avenue front of the hotel, gradually the inarticulate questioning found words, albeit strange ones. It reminds me of the swamp, she said. Mrs. Vanderpool, just returned from a shopping tour, burst into laughter. <laughs> it is, but I marvel at your penetration. I mean, it it is moving. Always moving, the swamp seemed to me unearthly still. Yes, yes, cried Zora eagerly, brushing back the rumpled hair. And so did the city at first to me. Still? New York? Yes. You see, I saw the buildings and forgot the men, and the buildings were so tall and silent against heaven. And then I came to see the people, and suddenly I knew the city was was like the swamp. Always restless and changing, and more beautiful," suggested Mrs. Vanderpool, slipping her arms into her lounging robe. "Oh no, not not nearly so beautiful, and yet more interesting." Then, with a puzzled look, "I wonder why. Perhaps it's because it's people and not things. It's people in the swamp," asserted Zora dreamily, smoothing out the pillows of the couch. "Little people, I call them. The difference is." I think that there, I know how the story will come out. Everything is changing, but I know how and why and from what and to what. Now here, everything seems to be happening, but what is it that is happening? You must know what has happened to know what may happen, said Mrs. Vanderpool. But how can I know? I'll get you some books tomorrow. I'd like to know what it means, wistfully. It is meaningless. The woman's cynicism was lost upon Zora, of course, but it possessed the salutary effect of stimulating the girl's thoughts, encouraging her to discover for herself. I think not. So much must mean something, she protested. Zora gathered up the clothes and things and shaded the windows, glancing the while down on the street. Everybody is going, going, she murmured. I wonder where. Don't they ever get there? Few arrive said Mrs. Vanderpool. Zora softly bent and passed her cool, soft hand over her forehead. Then why do they go? The zest of the search, perhaps? No, said Zora as she noiselessly left the room and closed the door. No, they are searching for something they have lost. Perhaps they, too, are searching for the way, and the tears blinded her eyes. Mrs. Vanderpool lay in the quiet, darkened room with a puzzled smile on her lips. A month ago, she had not dreamed that human interest in anybody would take so strong a hold upon her as her liking for Zora had done. She was a woman of unusual personal charm, but her own interests and affections were seldom stirred. Had she been compelled to earn a living, she would have made a successful teacher or manipulator of men. As it was, she viewed the human scene with detached and cynical interest. She had no children, few near relations, a husband who went his way and still was a gentleman. Essentially, Mrs. Vanderpool was unmoral. She held the code of her social set with sportsmanlike honor, but even beyond this she stooped to no intrigue, because none interested her. She had all the elements of power save the motor for doing anything in particular, For the first time, perhaps Zora gave her life a peculiar human interest. She did not love the girl, but she was intensely interested in her. Some of the interest was selfish, for Zora was going to be a perfect maid. The girl's language came to be more and more like Mrs. Vanderpool's. Her dress and taste in adornment had been Mrs. Vanderpool's first care, and it led to a curious training in art and sense of beauty, until the lady now and then found herself learner before the quick suggestiveness of Zora's mind. When Mrs. Harry Cresswell called a month or so later, the talk naturally included mention of Zora. Mary was happy and vivacious, and noted the girl's rapid development. I wonder what I shall make out of her, queried Mrs. Vanderpool. Do you know, I believe I could mold her into a lady if she were not black, Mary Cresswell laughed. <laughs> with that hair? It has artistic possibilities. You should have seen my hairdresser's face when I told her to do it up. Her face and Zora's were a pantomime for the gods. Yet it was done. It lay in some great twisted cloud, and in that black net gown of mine, Zora was simply magnificent. Her form is perfect. Her height is regal. Her skin is satin, and my jewels found a resting place at last. Jewels, you know, dear, were never meant for white folk. I was tempted to take her to the box at the opera and let New York break its impudent neck. Mary was shocked. But Mrs. Vanderpool, she protested, is it right? Is it fair? Why should you spoil this black girl and put impossible ideas into her head? You can make her a perfect maid... But she can never be much more in America. She is the perfect maid now. That's the miracle of it. She's that deft and quick and quiet and thoughtful. The hotel employees think her perfect. My friends rave, really. I'm the most blessed of women. But do you know, I like the girl. I, well, I think of her future. It's wrong to treat her as you do. You make her an equal. Her room is one of the best and filled with books and bric-a-brac. She sometimes eats with you, is your companion in fact. What of it? She loves to read, and I guide her while she keeps me up on the latest stuff. She can talk much better than many of my friends, and then she piques my curiosity. She's a sort of intellectual sauce that stirs my rapidly failing mental appetite. I think that as soon as I can make up my mind to spare her, I'll take her to France and marry her off in the colonies. Well, that's possible, but one doesn't easily give up good servants. By the way, I learned from Miss Smith that the boy, Bless Alwyn, in whom Zora was so interested, is a clerk in the Treasury Department at Washington. Indeed, I'm going to Washington this winter. I'll look him over and see if he's worth Zora, which I greatly doubt. Mrs. Cresswell pursed her lips and changed the subject. Have you seen the Easterlies? The ladies left their cards. They are quite impossible. Mr. Easterly calls this afternoon. I can't imagine why, but he asked for an appointment. Will you go south with Mr. Cresswell? I'm glad to hear he's entering politics. No, I shall do some early house hunting in Washington, said Mrs. Cresswell, rising as Mr. Easterly was announced. Mr. Easterly was not at home in Mrs. Vanderpool's presence. She spoke a language different from his, and she had shown a disconcerting way in the few times when he had spoken with her of letting the weight of the conversation rest on him. He felt very distinctly that Mrs. Vanderpool was not particularly desirous of his company nor that of his family. Nevertheless, he needed Mrs. Vanderpool's influence just now and he was willing to pay considerable for it. Once under obligation to him, her services would be very valuable. He was glad to find Mrs. Cresswell there. It showed that the Cresswells were still intimate and the Cresswells were bound to him and his interests by strong ties. He bowed as Mrs. Cresswell left, and then did not beat around the bush because, in this case, he did not know how. "'Mrs. Vanderpool, I need your aid!' Mrs. Vanderpool smiled politely and murmured something. "'We are, you know, in the midst of a rather warm presidential campaign,' continued Mr. Easterly. "'Yes?' with polite interest." We are going to win easily, but our majority in Congress for certain matters will depend on the attitude of Southerners, and you usually spend the winters in Washington. If now you could drop a word here and there. But why should I? asked Mrs. Vanderpool. Mrs. Vanderpool, to be frank, I know some excellent investments that your influence in this line would help. I take it you're not so rich, but that... Mrs. Vanderpool smiled faintly. Really, Mr. Easterly, I know little about such matters and care less. I have food and clothes. Why worry with more? Mr. Easterly half expected this, and he determined to deliver his last shot on the run. He arose with a disappointed air. Of course, Mrs. Vanderpool, I see how it is. You have plenty, and one can't expect your services or influence for nothing. It had occurred to me that your husband might like something political, but I presume not. Something political? Yes, you see, it's barely possible, for instance, that there will be a change in the French ambassadorship. The present ambassador is old and, well, I don't know, but as I say, it's possible. Of course, though, that may not appeal to you, and... I can only beg your good offices in charity if, if you see your way to help us. Well, I must be going. What is... I thought the president appointed ambassadors? To be sure, but huh, we appoint presidents, laughed Mr. Easterly. Good day. I shall hope to see you in Washington. Good day, Mrs. Vanderpool returned absently. After he had gone, she walked slowly to Zora's room and opened the door. For a long time she stood quietly looking in. Zora was curled in a chair with a book. She was in dreamland, in a world of books, builded thoughtfully for her by Mrs. Vanderpool, and before that by Miss Smith. Her work took but little of her time and left hours for reading and thinking. In that thought-life, more and more her real living centered. Hour after hour, day after day, she lay buried, deaf and dumb to all else her heart cried, up on the world's four corners of the way, and to it came the vision splendid. She gossiped with old Herodotus across the earth to the black and blameless Ethiopians. She saw the sculptured glories of Phidias marbled amid the splendor of the swamp. She listened to Demosthenes and walked the Apean way with Cornelia, while all New York streamed beneath her window. She saw the drunken Goths reel upon Rome, and heard the careless Negroes yodel as they galloped to Tombsville. Paris she knew, wonderful, haunting Paris, the Paris of Clovis and St. Louis, of Louis the Great and Napoleon III, of Balzac and her own Dumas. She tasted the mud and comfort of thick old London, and the while wept with Jeremiah, and sang with Deborah, Semiramis, and Datala. Mary of Scotland and Joan of Arc held her dark hands in theirs, and kings lifted up their sceptres. She walked on whorls and whirls of whirls, and heard there, in her little room, the tread of armies, the peons of victory, the breaking of hearts, and the music of the spheres. Mrs. Vanderpool watched her a while. "'Sora,' she presently broke into the girl's absorption, "'how would you like to be ambassador to France?' End of chapter 23 Miss Caroline Wynne of Washington had little faith in the world and its people, nor was this wholly her fault. The world had dealt cruelly with the young dreams and youthful ambitions of the girl, partly with its usual heartlessness, partly with that cynical and deadening reserve fund which it has today for its darker peoples. The girl had bitterly resented her experiences at first. She was brilliant and well-trained. She had a real talent for sculpture and had studied considerably. She was sprung from at least three generations of respectable mulattoes, who had left a little competence which yielded her three or four hundred dollars a year. Furthermore, while not precisely pretty, She was good-looking and interesting, and she had acquired the marks and insignia of good breeding. Perhaps she wore her manners just a trifle consciously. Perhaps she was a little morbid that she would fail of recognition as a lady. Nor was this unnatural. Her brown skin invited a different assumption. Despite this almost unconscious mental aggressiveness, she was unusually presentable and always well-groomed and pleasant of speech. Yet she found nearly all careers closed to her, At first it seemed accidental, the luck of life, then she attributed it to her sex, but at last she was sure that, beyond chance and womanhood, it was the color line that was hemming her in. Once convinced of this, she let her imagination play and saw the line even where it did not exist. With her bit of property and brilliant parts, she had had many suitors, but they had been refused one after another for reasons she could hardly have explained. For years now, Tom Tearswell had been her escort. Whether or not Caroline Wynne would ever marry him was a perennial subject of speculation among her friends, and it usually ended in the verdict that she could not afford it, that it was financially impossible. Nevertheless, the two were usually seen in public together, and although she often showed her quiet mastery of the situation, seldom had she snubbed him so openly as at the treble clef concert. Tearswell was furious and began to plot vengeance, but Miss Wynne was attracted by the personality of Bless Alwyn. Southern country Negroes were rare in her set, but here was a man of intelligence and keenness, coupled with an amazing frankness and modesty, and perceptibility shadowed by sorrow. The combination was, so far as she had observed, both rare and temporary, and she was disposed to watch it in this case purely as a matter of intellectual curiosity. At the door of her home, therefore, after a walk of unusual interest, she said, "'I'm going to have a few friends in next Tuesday night. Won't you come, Mr. Alwyn?' And Mr. Alwyn said that he would. Next morning, Miss Wynne rather repented her hasty invitation, but of course nothing could be done now. Nothing? Well, there was one thing, and she went to the telephone. A suggestion to bless that he might profitably extend his acquaintance sent him to a certain tailor shop kept by a friend of hers. A word to the tailor guarded against the least suspicion of intrigue entering Bless's head. It turned out quite as Miss Wynne had designed. Mr. Gray, the tailor, gave Bless some points on dressing, and made him, southern fashion, a frock coat for dress wear that set off his fine figure. On the night of the gathering at Miss Wynne's, Bless dressed with care, hesitating long over a necktie, but at last choosing one, which he had recently purchased, and which pleased him particularly. He was prompt to the minute and was consequently the first guest, but Miss Wynne's greeting was so quietly cordial that his embarrassment soon fled. She looked him over at leisure and sighed at his tie. Otherwise he was thoroughly presentable according to the strictest Washington standard. They sat down and talked of generalities, Then an idea occurring to her, she conducted the conversation by devious paths to ties, and asked Alwyn if he had heard of the fad of collecting ties. He had not, and she showed him a sofa pillow. "'Your tie quite attracted me,' she said. "'It would make just the dash of color I need in my new pillow.' "'You may have it, and welcome. I'll send—oh, no!' "'A bird in the hand, you know. I'll trade you now for another I have. "'Done!' The exchange was soon made, Miss Wynne tying the new one herself and sticking a small carved pin in it. Bless slowly sat down again and after a pause said, Thank you. She looked up quickly, but he seemed quite serious and good-natured. You see, he explained, in the country, we don't know much about ties." The well-balanced Miss Wynne for a moment lost her aplomb, but only for a moment. We must all learn, she replied with penetration, and so their friendship was established. The company now began to gather, and soon the double parlor held an assemblage of twenty-five or thirty persons. They formed a picturesque group, conventional but graceful in dress, animated in movement, full of good-natured laughter, but quite un-American in the beautiful modulation of their speaking tones, chiefly noticeable, however, to a stranger, in the vast variety of color and skin which imparted to the throng a piquant and unusual interest. Every color was here. From the dark brown of Alwyn, who was customarily accounted black, to the pale pink-white of Miss Jones, who could pass for white when she would, and found her greatest difficulties when she was trying to pass for black. Midway between these two extremes lay the sallow pastor of the church, the creamy Miss Williams, the golden yellow of Mr. Tearswell, the golden brown of Miss Johnson, and the velvet brown of Mr. Gray. The guests themselves did not notice this. They were used to asking one's color as one asks of height and weight. It was simply an extra dimension in their world whereby to classify men. Beyond this and their hair, there was little to distinguish them from a modern group of men and women. The speech was a softened English, purely and on the whole correctly spoken, so much so that it seemed at first almost unfamiliar to bless, and he experienced again the uncomfortable feeling of being among strangers. Then, too, he missed the loud but hearty good nature of what he had always called his people. To be sure, a more experienced observer might have noted a lively, excitable, tropical temperament, set and cast in a cold northern mold, and yet flashing fire now and then in a sudden anomalous outbursting. But Blesk missed this. He seemed to have slipped and lost his bearings, and the characteristics of his simple world were rolling curiously about. Here stood a black man with a white man's voice, and yonder a white woman with a negro's musical cadences, and yet again a brown girl with exactly Miss Cresswell's air, and yonder Miss Williams with Zora's wistful willfulness. Bless was bewildered and silent, and his great undying sorrow sank on his heart with sickening hopeless weight his hands got in the way and he found no natural nook in all those wide and tastefully furnished rooms once he discovered himself standing by a marble statue of a nude woman and he edged away then he stumbled over a rug and saved himself only to step on miss jones's silken train Miss Jones' smile of pardon was wintry. When he did approach a group and listen, they seemed speaking of things foreign to him, usually of people he did not know, their homes, their doings, their daughters and their fathers. They seemed to know people intimately who lived far away. "'You mean the Smiths of Boston?' asked Miss Jones. "'No, of Cleveland. They're not related. I heard that McGee of St. Paul will be in the city next week with his daughter.' Yes, and the Bentleys of Chicago. Bless passed on. He was disappointed. He was full of things to say, of mighty matters to discuss. He felt like stopping these people and crying, Oh, what of the morning? How goes the great battle for black men's rights? I have came with messages from the host to you who guard the mountaintops. Apparently, they were not discussing or caring about the problem. He grew disgusted and was edging toward the door when he encountered his hostess. "'Is all well with you, Mr. Alwyn?' she asked lightly. "'No, I'm not enjoying myself,' said Bless truthfully. "'Delicious! And why not?' he regarded her earnestly. "'There are so many things to talk about,' he said. "'Earnest things, things of importance. I—I think when our people—' he hesitated. "'Our? Was our right?' But he went on. "'When our people meet, we ought to talk about our situation and what to do And Miss Wind continued to smile. "'We're all talking of it all the time,' she said. He looked incredulous. "'Yes, we are,' she insisted. "'We veil it a little and laugh as lightly as we can. But there is only one thought in this room, and that's grave and serious enough to suit even you and quite your daily topic. But I don't understand—' "'Ah, there's the rub.' You haven't learned our language yet. We don't just blurt into the negro problem. That's voted bad form. We'll leave that to our white friends. We saunter to it sideways. Touch it delicately because... Her face became a little graver. Because you see, it hurts. Bless stood thoughtful and abashed. I, I think I understand, he gravely said at last. Come here, she said with a sudden turn, and they joined an absorbed group in the midst of a conversation. Thinking of sending Jessie to Bryn Maw, Bless heard Miss Jones saying. Could she pass? Oh, they might think her Spanish, but it's a snobbish place and she would have to give up all her friends. Yes, Freddy could scarcely visit. The rest was lost. Which, being interpreted, whispered Miss Wynn, means that Bryn Maw draws the color line while we at times surmounted. They moved on to another group. Splendid draughtsmen, a man was saying and passed at the head of the crowd but of course he has no chance why it's civil service isn't it it is but what of that there was watson miss Wynne did not pause she whispered this is the tale of civil service reform and how this mighty government gets rid of black men who know too much but bless tried to protest hush miss Wynne commanded and they joined the group about the piano Tearswell, who was speaking, affected not to notice them and continued, "'I tell you, it's got to come. "'We must act independently and not be bought by a few officers.' "'That's all well enough for you to talk, Tearswell. "'You have no wife and babies dependent on you. "'Why should we who have sacrifice the substance for the shadow?' <laughs> "'You see, the judge has got the substance,' laughed Tearswell. "'Still, I insist, divide and conquer.' "'Nonsense! Unite and keep!' "'Bless was puzzled. "'They're talking of the coming campaign,' said Miss Wynne. "'What?' exclaimed Bless aloud. "'You don't mean that anyone can advise a black man to vote the Democratic ticket!' "'An elderly man turned to them. "'Thank you, sir,' he said. "'That is just my attitude. "'I fought for my freedom. "'I know what slavery is. "'May I forget God when I vote for traitors and slaveholders.' The discussion waxed warm and Miss Wynne turned away and sought Miss Jones. Come, my dear, she said. It's the problem again. They sauntered away toward a ring of laughter. The discussion thus begun at Miss Wynne's did not end there. It was on the eve of the great party conventions, and the next night Sam Stillings came around to get some crumbs from this assembly of the inner circle into which Alwyn had been so unaccountably snatched and outside of which, despite his endeavors, Stillings lingered and seemed destined to linger. But Stillings was a patient, resolute man beneath his deferential exterior, and he saw in Bless a stepping stone. So he began to drop in at his lodgings, and tonight invited him to the Bethel Literary. What's that? asked Bless. Uh, the debating club, oldest in the city, the best people all attend. Bless hesitated. He had half made up his mind that this was the proper time to call on Miss Wynn. He told Stillings so and told him also of the evening and the discussion. Why, that's the subject up tonight, Stillings declared, and Miss Wynn will be sure to be there. You can make your call later. Perhaps you wouldn't mind taking me when you call. Alwyn reached for his hat. When they arrived, the basement of the great church was filling with a throng of men and women. Soon the officers and the speaker of the evening appeared. The president was a brown woman who spoke easily and well and introduced the main speaker. He was a tall, thin, hatchet-faced black man, clean-shaven and well-dressed, a lawyer by profession. His theme was the Democratic Party and the Negro. His argument was cool, carefully reasoned, and plausible. He was evidently feeling for the sympathy of his audience, and while they were not enthusiastic, they warmed to him gradually, and he certainly was strongly impressing them. Bless was thinking. He sat in the back of the hall, tense, alert, nervous. As the speaker progressed, a white man came in and sat down beside him. He was spectacled, with bushy eyebrows and a sleepy look. But he did not sleep. He was very observant. Who's oh, speaking? he asked Bless, and Bless told him. Then he inquired about one or two other persons. Bless could not inform him, but Stillings could and did. Stillings seemed willing to devote considerable time to him. Bless forgot the man. He was almost crouching for a spring, and no sooner had the speaker, with a really fine apostrophe to independence and reason in voting, sat down than Bless was on his feet, walking forward. His form was commanding, his voice deep and musical, and his earnestness terribly evident. He hardly waited for recognition from the slightly astonished president, but fairly burst into speech. "'I am from Alabama,' he began earnestly, "'and I know the Democratic Party.' Then he told of government and conditions in the Black Belt, of the lying oppression and helplessness of the sodden black masses. Then, turning, he reminded them of the history of slavery.' Finally, he pointed to Lincoln's picture and to Sumner's and mentioned other white friends. And my brothers, they are not all dead yet. The gentleman spoke of Senator Smith and blamed and ridiculed him. I know Senator Smith but slightly, but I do know his sister well. Dropping to simple narrative, he told of Miss Smith and of his coming to school. And if his audience felt that great depth of emotion that welled beneath his quiet, almost hesitating address, it was not simply because of what he did say, but because, too, of the unspoken story that lay too deep for words. He spoke for nearly an hour, and when he stopped, for a moment his hearers sighed and then sprang into a whirlwind of applause. They shouted, clapped, and waved while he sat in blank amazement and was with difficulty forced to the rostrum to bow again and again. The spectacled white man leaned over to Stillings. "'Who is he?' he asked. Stillings told him. The man noted the name and went quietly out. Miss Wynne sat lost in thought, and tears well beside her fumed. She was not easily moved, but that speech had moved her. "'If he could thus stir men and not be himself swayed,' she mused, "'he would be invincible.' but tonight he was moved as greatly as his hearers had been, and that was dangerous. If his intense belief happened to be popular, all right. But if not, she frowned. He was worth watching, she concluded, quite worth watching, and perhaps worth guiding. When Alwyn accompanied her home that night, Miss Wynne set herself to know him better, for she suspected that he might be a coming man. The best preliminary to her purpose was she knew to speak frankly of herself, and that she did. She told him of her youth and training, her ambitions, her disappointments. Quite unconsciously, her cynicism crept to the fore, until in word and tone she had almost scoffed at many things that Alwyn held true and dear. The touch was too light, the meaning too elusive for Alwyn to grasp always the point of attack, But somehow he got the distant impression that Miss Wynne had little faith in truth and goodness and love. Vaguely shocked, he grew so silent that she noticed it and concluded she had said too much. But he pursued the subject. Surely there must be many friends of our race willing to stand for the right and sacrifice for it. She laughed unpleasantly, almost mockingly. Where? Well, there's Miss Smith. She gets a salary, doesn't she? A very small one, about as large as she could earn. North, I don't doubt. But the unselfish work she does, the utter sacrifice. Oh well, we'll omit Alabama and admit the exception. Well, here in Washington, there's your friend, the judge, who has befriended you so, as you admit, she laughed again. You remember our visit to Senator Smith? Yes. Well, it got the judge his reappointment to the school board. He deserved it, didn't he? I deserved it, she said luxuriously, hugging her knee and smiling. You see, his appointment meant mine. Well, what of it? Didn't? Listen, she cut in a little sharply. Once a young brown girl with boundless faith in white folks went to a judge's office to ask for an appointment, which she deserved. There was no one there. The benign old judge, with his saintly face and white hair, suggested she lay aside her wraps and spend the afternoon. Bless arose to his feet. "'What? What did you do?' he asked. "'Sit down. There's a good boy.' I said, "'Judge, a friend is expecting me at two. It was then half past one. Would I not best telephone?' ''Step right into the booth,'' said the judge quite indulgently. Miss Wynn leaned back and Bless felt his heart sinking, but he said nothing. ''And then,'' she continued, ''I telephoned the judge's wife that he was anxious to see her on a matter of urgent business, namely my appointment.'' She gazed reflectively out of the window. ''You should have seen his face when I told him,'' she concluded. ''I was appointed.'' But Bless asked coldly, ''Why didn't you have him arrested?'' For what? And suppose I had. Bless threw out his arms helplessly. Oh, it isn't as bad as that all over the world, is it? It's worse, affirmed Miss Wynne, quietly positive. And you are still friendly with him? What would you have? I used the world. I did not make it. I did not choose it. He is the world. Through him I earn my bread and butter." I have shown him his place. Shall I try in addition to reform? Shall I make him an enemy? I have neither time nor inclination. Shall I resign and beg or go tilting at windmills? If he were the only one, it would be different, but they're all alike. Her face grew hard. Have I shocked you? She said as they went toward the door. No, he answered slowly, but I still believe in the world. You are young yet, my friend, she lightly replied. And besides, that good Miss Smith has gone and grafted a New England conscience on a tropical heart. And dear me, but it's a gorgeous misfit. Goodbye. Come again. She bowed him graciously out and paused to take the mail from the box. There was, among many others, a letter from Senator Smith. End of chapter 24 Mr. Easterly sat in Mrs. Vanderpool's apartments in the new Willard, Washington, drinking tea. His hostess was saying rather carelessly, Do you know Mr. Vanderpool has developed a quite unaccountable liking for the idea of being ambassador to France? Dear me, mildly exclaimed Mr. Easterly, helping himself liberally to cakes. I do hope the thing can be managed, but what are the difficulties? Mrs. Vanderpool interrupted. Well, first and foremost, the difficulty of electing our men. I thought that a foregone conclusion. It was, but do you know that we're encountering opposition from the most unexpected source? The lady was receptive, and the speaker concluded, The Negroes. The Negroes? <laughs> yes, there are 500,000 or more black voters in pivotal northern states, you know, and they're in revolt. In a close election, the Negroes, of New York, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois choose the president. What's the matter? Well, business interests have driven our party to make friends with the South. The South has disenfranchised Negroes and lynched a few. The darkies say we've deserted them. Mrs. Vanderpool (laughs) laughed. What extraordinary penetration, she cried. At any rate, said Mr. Easterly dryly, Mr. Vanderpool's first step toward Paris lies in getting the northern Negroes to vote the Republican ticket. After that, the way is clear. Mrs. Vanderpool mused. I don't suppose you know anyone who is acquainted with any number of these northern darkies, continued Mr. Easterly. No my calling list, said Mrs. Vanderpool, and then she added more thoughtfully. There's a young clerk in the Treasury Department named Alwyn who has brains. He's just from the South, and I happened to read of him this morning. Mr. Easterly read an account of the speech at the Bethel Literary. We'll look this young man up, he decided. He may help. Of course, Mrs. Vanderpool will probably win. We can buy these Negroes off with a little money and a few small offices. Then, if you'll use your influence for the part of the Southerners, I can confidently predict from four to eight years' sojourn in Paris. Mrs. Vanderpool smiled and called her maid as Mr. Easterly went. Zora! She had to call twice, for Zora, with widened eyes, was reading the Washington Post. Meantime, in the office of Senator Smith, toward which Mr. Easterly was making his way, several members of the National Republican Campaign Committee had been closeted the day before. Now about the niggers, the chairman had asked, how much more boodle do they want? That's what's bothering us, announced a member. It isn't the boodle crowd that's hollering, but a new set, and I don't understand them. I don't know what they represent nor just how influential they are. What can I do to help you? asked Senator Smith. This. You are here in Washington with these negro office holders at your back. Find out for us just what this revolt is, how far it goes, and what good men we can get to swing the dockies into line, see? Very good. The Senator acquiesced. He called in a spectacled man with bushy eyebrows and a sleepy look. I want you to work the Negro political situation, directed the senator, and bring me all the data you can get. Personally, I'm at sea. I don't understand the Negro of today at all. He puzzles me. He doesn't fit any of my categories, and I suspect that I don't fit his. See what you can find out. The man went out, and the senator turned to his desk, then paused and smiled. One day, not long since, he had met a colored person who personified his perplexity concerning Negroes. She was a lady, yet she was black, that is, brown. She was educated, even cultured, yet she taught Negroes. She was quiet, astute, quick, and diplomatic. Everything, in fact, that Negroes were not supposed to be. And yet she was a Negro. She had given him valuable information which he had sought in vain elsewhere and the event proved it correct. Suppose he asked Caroline Wynne to help him in this case. It would certainly do no harm, and it might elect a Republican president. He wrote a short letter with his own hand and sent it to post. Miss Wynne read the letter after Alwyn's departure with a distinct thrill, which was something of a luxury for her. Evidently, she was coming to her kingdom. The Republican boss was turning to her for confidential information. "'What do the colored people want, and who can best influence them in this campaign?' She curled up on the ottoman and considered. The first part of the query did not bother her. "'Whatever they want, they won't get,' she said decisively. But as to the man or men who could influence them to believe that they were getting or about to get what they wanted, there was a question. One by one she considered the men she knew and, by a process of elimination, finally arrived at Bless Alwyn.' Why not take this young man in hand and make a Negro leader of him, a protagonist of ten millions? It would not be unpleasant, but could she do it? Would he be amenable to her training and become worldly wise? She flattered herself that he would. And yet there was a certain steadfast look in the depths of his eyes that might prove to be sheer stubbornness. At any rate, who was better? There was a fellow, Stillings whom Alwyn had introduced and whom she had heard of. Now he was a politician, but nothing else. She dismissed him. Of course, there was the older set of office holders and rounders, but she was determined to pick a new man. He was worth trying, at any rate. She knew none other with the same build, the brains, the gifts, the adorable youth. Very good, she wrote two letters and then curled up to her novel and candy. Next day, Senator Smith held Miss Wynne's letter unopened in his hand when Mr. Easterly entered. They talked of the campaign and various matters until at last Easterly said, "'Say, there's a Negro clerk at the Treasury named Alwyn. I know him. I had him appointed.' "'Good. He may help us. Have you seen this?' The senator read the clipping. "'I hadn't noticed it. But here's my agent.' The spectacled man entered with a mass of documents. He had papers, posters, programs, and letters. The situation is this, he said. A small group of educated Negroes are trying to induce the rest to punish the Republican Party for not protecting them. These men are not politicians nor popular leaders, but they have influence and are using it. The old-style Negro politicians are no match for them and the crowd of office holders are rather bewildered. Strong measures are needed. Educated men of earnestness and ability might stem the tide. And I believe I know one such man. He spoke at a big meeting last night at the Metropolitan Church. His name is Alwyn. Senator Smith listened as he opened the letter from Caroline Wynne. Then he started. Well, he ejaculated, looking quickly up at Easterly. This is positively uncanny. From three separate sources, the name of Alwyn pops up. Looks like a mascot. Call up the Treasury. Let's have him up when the subcommittee meets tomorrow. Bless Alwyn hurried up to Senator Smith's office hoping to hear something about the school, perhaps even about, but he stopped with a sigh and sat down in the ante room. He was kept waiting for a few moments while Senator Smith, the chairman, and one other member of the subcommittee had a word. Now, I don't know the young man, mind you, said the senator, but he strongly recommended. What shall we offer him? Asked the chairman. Try him at $25 a speech. If he balks, raise to $50, but no more. They summoned the young man. The chairman produced cigars. Uh, I, I don't smoke, said Bless apologetically. Well, we haven't anything to drink, said the chairman. But Senator Smith broke in, taking up at once the paramount interest. Mr. Alwyn, as you know, the Democrats are making an effort to get the Negro vote in this campaign. Now I know the disadvantages and wrongs which black men in this land are suffering. I believe the Republicans ought to do more to defend them, and I'm satisfied they will. But I doubt if the way to get Negro rights is to vote for those who took them away. I agree with you perfectly, said Bless. I understand you do, and that you made an unusually fine speech on the subject the other night. Thank you, sir. This was a good deal more than Bless had expected, and he was embarrassed. Well now, we think you're just the man to take the stump during September and October and convince the colored people of their real interests. I I doubt if I could, sir. I'm not a speaker. In fact, that was my first public speech. So much the better. Are you willing to try? Why, yes, sir. But I could hardly afford to give up my position. We'll arrange for a leave of absence. Then I'll try, sir. What would you expect as pay? I suppose my salary would stop. I mean, in addition to that. Oh, nothing, sir. I'd be glad to do the work. The chairman nearly choked. Sitting back, he eyed the young man. Either they were dealing with a fool or else a very astute politician. If the former, how far could they trust him? If the latter, what was his game? Of course, there'll be considerable traveling, the chairman ventured, looking reflectively out of the window. Yes, sir, I suppose so. We might pay the railroad fare. Thank you, sir. When shall I begin? The chairman consulted his calendar. Suppose you hold yourself in readiness for one week from today. All right, and bless Rose. Good day, gentlemen. But the chairman was still puzzled. Now what's his game, he asked helplessly. He may be honest, offered Senator Smith, contemplating the door almost wistfully. The campaign progressed. The National Republican Committee said little about the Negro revolt and affected to ignore it. The papers were silent. Underneath this calm, however, the activity was redoubled. The prominent Negroes were carefully catalogued, written to, and put under personal influence. The Negro papers were quietly subsidized, and they began to ridicule and reproach the new leaders. As the fall progressed, mass meetings were held in Washington and the small towns. Larger and larger ones were projected, and more and more Alwyn was pushed to the front. He was developing into a most effective speaker. He had the voice, the presence, the ideas, and above all, he was intensely in earnest. There were other colored orators with voice, presence, and eloquence, but their people knew their record and discounted them. Alwyn was new, clear, and sincere, and the black folk hung on his words. Large and larger crowds greeted him until he was the central figure in a half-dozen great Negro mass meetings in the chief cities of the country, culminating in New York, the night before the election. Perhaps the secret newspaper work, the personal advice of employers and friends, and the liberal distribution of cash would have delivered a large part of the Negro vote to the Republican candidate, perhaps. But there was a doubt. With the work of Alwyn, however, all doubt disappeared, and there was little reason for denying that the new president walked into the White House through the instrumentality of an unknown Georgia Negro, little past his majority. This is what Senator Smith said to Mr. Easterly, what Miss Wynne said to herself, and it was what Mrs. Vanderpool remarked to Zora as Zora was combing her hair on the Wednesday after the election. Zora murmured an indistinct response, as already something of the beauty of the world had found question and answer in her soul. And as she began to realize how the world had waxed old in thought and stature so now in their last days a sense of the power of men as set over against the immensity and force of their surroundings became real to her she had begun to read of the lives and doing of those called great and in her mind a plan was forming she saw herself standing dim within the shadows directing the growing power of a man A man who would be great, as the world counted greatness, rich, high in position, powerful, wonderful, because his face was black. He would never see her, never know how she worked and planned, save perhaps at last, in that supreme moment as she passed, her soul would cry to his, redeemed, and he would understand. All this she was thinking and weaving, not clearly and definitely, but in great blurred clouds of thought of things as she said slowly, he should have a great position for this. Why, certainly, Mrs. Vanderpool agreed, and then curiously, what? Zora considered. Negroes, she said, have been registers of the treasury and recorders of deeds here in Washington, and Douglas was marshal, but I won't bless, she paused and started again. Those are not great enough for Mr. Alwyn, He should have an office so important that Negroes would not think of leaving their party again. Mrs. Vanderpool took pains to repeat Zora's words to Mr. Easterly. He considered the matter. In one sense, it's good advice, he admitted. But there's the South to reckon with. I'll thank it over and speak to the President. Oh, yes, I'm going to mention France at the same time. Mrs. Vanderpool smiled and leaned back in her carriage. She noted with considerable interest the young colored woman who was watching her from the sidewalk, a brown, well-appearing young woman of notable self-possession. Caroline Wynne scrutinized Mrs. Vanderpool because she had been speaking with Mr. Easterly, and Mr. Easterly was a figure of political importance. That very morning, Miss Wynne had telegraphed, Bless Alwyn. Alwyn arrived at Washington just as the morning papers heralded the sweeping Republican victory all about. He met new deference and new friends. Strangers greeted him familiarly on the street. Sam Stillings became his shadow and when he reported for work his chief and fellow clerks took unusual interest in him. Have you seen Senator Smith yet? Miss Wynne? asked after a few words of congratulation. No, what for? What for? she answered. Go to him today. Don't fail. I shall be at home at eight tonight. It seemed to Bless an exceedingly silly thing to do, calling on a busy man with no errand, but he went. He decided that he would just thank the senator for his interest and get out, or if the senator was busy, he would merely send in his card. Evidently, the senator was busy, for his waiting room was full. Bless handed the card to the secretary with a word of apology, but the secretary detained him. Uh, Mr. Alwyn, he said affably, glad to see you. The senator will want to see you, I know. Wait just a minute. And soon, Bless was shaking Senator Smith's hand. Well, Mr. Alwyn, said the senator heartily, you delivered the goods. Thank you, sir. I I tried to. Senator Smith thoughtfully looked him over and drew out the letters. Your friends, Mr. Alwyn, he said, adjusting his glasses, have a rather high opinion of you. Here now is Stillings, who helped on the campaign. He suggests an $1,800 clerkship for you. The senator glanced up keenly and omitted to state what Stillings suggested for himself. Alwyn was visibly grateful as well as surprised. I, I hoped, he began hesitatingly, that perhaps I might get a promotion, but I had not thought of a first-class clerkship. Hmm. Senator Smith leaned back and twiddled his thumb, staring at Alwyn until the hot blood darkened his cheeks. Then Bless sat up and stared politely but steadily back. The senator's eyes dropped and he put out his hand for the second note. Now, your friend, Miss Wynne, Alwyn started, is even more ambitious. He handed her letter to the young man and pointed out the words. Of course, Senator, Bless read, We expect Mr. Alwyn to be the next register of the treasury. Les looked up in amazement, but the senator reached for a third letter. The room was very still. At last he found it. This, he announced quietly, is from a man of great power and influence who has the ear of the new president. He smoothed out the letter, paused briefly, then read aloud it has been suggested to me by the senator did not read the name if he had mrs vanderpool would have meant little to alwyn it has been suggested to me by blank that the future allegiance of the negro vote to the republican party might be ensured by giving to some prominent negro a high political position for instance treasurer of the united states salary six thousand dollars interpolated Senator Smith, and that Alwyn would be a popular and safe appointment for that position. The senator did not read the concluding sentence, which ran, Think this over. We can't touch political conditions in the South. Perhaps this sop will do. For a long time, Alwyn sat motionless while the senator said nothing. Then the young man rose unsteadily. I don't think I quite grasp all this, he said as he shook hands. I'll think it over, and he went out. When Caroline Wynn heard of that extraordinary conversation, her amazement knew no bounds. Yet Alwyn ventured to voice doubts. I'm not fitted for either of those high offices. There are many others who deserve more. And I don't somehow like the idea of seeming to have worked hard in the campaign simply for money or fortune. You see, I talked against that very thing. Miss Wynne's eyes widened. Well, what else? she began and then changed. Mr. Alwyn, the line between virtue and foolishness is dim and wavering, and I should hate to see you lost in that marshy borderland. By a streak of extraordinary luck, you have gained political leadership of negroes in America. Here's your chance to lead your people, and here you stand blinking and hesitating. Be a man. Alwyn straightened up and felt his doubts going. The evening passed very pleasantly. I'm going to have a little dinner for you, said Miss Wynne finally, and Alwyn grew hot with pleasure. He turned to her suddenly and said, Why, I'm rather black. She expressed no surprise, but said reflectively, You are dark, and I've been given to understand that Miss Wynne and her set rather, well, prefer the lighter shades of colored folk. Miss (laughs) Wynne laughed lightly. (laughs) My parents did, she said simply. No dark man ever entered their house. They were simply copying the white world. Now I, as a matter of aesthetic beauty, prefer your brown velvet color to a jaundiced yellow or even an uncertain cream, but the world doesn't. The world? Yes, the world, and especially America. One may be Chinese, Spaniard, even Indian, anything white or dirty white in this land and demand decent treatment but to be negro or darkening toward it unmistakably means perpetual handicap and crucifixion why not then admit that you draw the color line because i don't but the world does i'm not prejudiced as my parents were but i am foresighted indeed it is a deep ethical query is it not how far one has the right to bear black children to the world in the land of the free and the home of the brave, is it fair to the children? Yes, it is, he cried vehemently. The more to take up the fight, the sure the victory. She laughed at his earnestness. <laughs> you are refreshing, she said. Well, we'll dine next Tuesday, and we'll have the cream of our world to meet you. He knew that this was a great triumph. It flattered his vanity. After all, he was entering this higher, dark world whose existence had piqued and puzzled him so long. He glanced at Miss Wynne beside him there in the dimly lighted parlor. She looked so aloof and unapproachable, so handsome and so elegant. He thought how she would complete a house, such a home as his prospective four or six thousand dollars a year could easily purchase. She saw him surveying her, and she smiled at him. "'I find but one fault with you,' she said. He stammered for a pretty speech, but did not find it before she continued. Yes, you are so delightfully primitive. You will not use the world as it is, but insist on acting as if it were something else. I am not sure I understand. Well, there is the wife of my judge. She is a fact in my world. In yours, she is a problem to be stated, straightened, and solved. If she had come to you, as she did to me yesterday, with her theory that "'All Southern Negroes needed was to learn how to make good servants and lay brick.' "'I should have shown her,' Bless tried to interject. "'Nothing of the sort. "'You would have tried to show her and would have failed miserably. "'She hasn't learned anything in twenty years. "'But surely you didn't join her in advocating that ten million people be menials.' "'Oh, no, I simply listened. "'Well, there's no harm in that. "'I believe in silence at times.' Ah, but I did not listen like a log, but positively and eloquently, with a nod, a half-formed word, a comment begun, which she finished, Bless frowned. As a result, continued Miss Wynn, I have a check for five hundred dollars to finish our cooking school and buy a cast of Minerva for the assembly room. More than that, I have now a wealthy friend. She thinks me an unusually clever person who, by a process of thought not unlike her own, has arrived at very similar conclusions. But, but, objected Bless, if the time spent cajoling fools were used in convincing the honest and upright, think how much we would gain. Very little. The honest and upright are a sad minority. Most of these white folk, believe me, boy, she said caressingly, are fools and knaves. They don't want truth or progress. They want to keep niggers down. I don't believe it. There are scores, thousands, perhaps millions such, I admit, but the average American loves justice and right, and he is the one to whom I appeal with frankness and truth. Great heavens, don't you love to be frank and open? She narrowed her eyelids. Yes, sometimes I do. Once I was, but it's a luxury few of us Negroes can afford. Then, too, I insist that it's jolly to fool them. Don't you hate the deception? She chuckled and put her head to one side. (laughs) At first I did, but do you know now, I believe I prefer it. He looked so horrified that she burst out laughing. He laughed too. She was a puzzle to him. He kept thinking what a mistress of a mansion she would make. Why do you say these things? He asked suddenly, because I want you to do well here in Washington. General philanthropy? No, special. Her eyes were bright with meaning. Then you care for me? Yes, he bent forward and cast the die. Enough to marry me? She answered very calmly and certainly. Yes, he leaned toward her, and then between him and her lips a dark and shadowy face. Two great storm-swept eyes looked into his out of a world of infinite pain, and he dropped his head in hesitation and shame and kissed her hand. Miss Wynne thought him delightfully bashful. End of chapter 25.